five minutes after 6 a.m. Good morning, everybody. My name is Nachum Siegel. Welcome to a Thursday. <laughs> this is your Jewish Moments of the Morning Radio program.
Thursday morning broadcast at 91.1 FM, 90.1 FM in the Catskills, Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial, around the world in the web, jmtheam.org. It's Thursday on this July 17th, day 19 in the month of Tammuz, the year 5774, Tufshin Ayan Dalid. You heard the... Um, Medley of music done by Yussi Rosenberg and company on a an album called simply the Sphera album. Yeah, now we're using it as a three weeks album. 
Back then, it was known as the Sphere album. <laughs> I think, in fact, a few uh, months ago, a few weeks ago, it was known as the Sphere album. The Maccabees had Marabu and Arim Roshi, and you heard Regesh Modani opening things up. As we say, good morning. Big day here at JM the AM. Those of you who follow us on social media, and I would hope that everybody has liked our Facebook update page. It's simply called Nahum Siegel Network. Again, Facebook update page is simply called Nahum Siegel Network. And I hope you've liked the page. If you have, then you know that today, right here at JM and the AM, Rabbi Joseph Telushkin, author of Rebbe. The book is called Rebbe. Simple as that. The life of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. He is going to be in our studio here at JM in the AM. Rabbi Joseph Telushkin, author of Rebbe, in studio this morning in hour number three. We are very, very much looking forward to it. This book has skyrocketed. It is everywhere. And we get to explore it with the author himself coming up in hour number three this morning right here at JM in the AM. So a big day, and we are looking forward. It's Thursday with 67 degrees, 68% humidity, winds in north at 7 miles an hour. Mostly sunny today with a high temperature of 80. Then tonight, partly cloudy, a low temperature of 63. Tomorrow, mostly sunny with a high of 83 degrees. Yerushalayim is at 86, Tel Aviv at 84, Haifa at 82, and a lot at 93 degrees. Up in Guilford, New York, our friends at Camp Missora who are getting ready for the big visiting day this Sunday. They're at 56 degrees. Heading up to 71 later on. We're at 67 here in Jersey City as we say good morning at JM in the AM. Well, focusing, of course, on our brothers and sisters in Israel. The the action continues on that side of the world. A projectile attack on southern Israel around noon Thursday broke the tense quiet of a temporary ceasefire between Israel and Hamas. That was supposed to last until 3 p.m. to allow relief aid in the Gaza Strip. Three mortars launched from Gaza landed in the Eshkol Regional Council. No injuries. The five-hour halt was requested by the U.N. to allow residents of the Hamas-run Gaza Strip to gather supplies and repair some of the infrastructure damaged on the 10th day of fighting. Before the humanitarian ceasefire went into effect, terrorists in the Palestinian territory launched rockets at the greater Tel Aviv area and communities in southern Israel. Also before dawn on Thursday, IDF forces foiled an attempt by Hamas terrorists to infiltrate a kibbutz near the Gaza frontier through an underground tunnel. Explosions were heard in the skies over greater Tel Aviv Thursday morning prior to the commencement of the ceasefire as Palestinian rocket launchers fired a barrage of projectiles at towns and suburbs in the Sharon region. One rocket was intercepted over the greater Tel Aviv and Sharon district, and one rocket fell in the area. Rocket sirens were sounded in highly populated suburbs of Tel Aviv, including Kfar Saba, Ranana, Petach Tikva, Kiryat Ono, and Bnei Brak. Four rockets fired from the Gaza Strip toward Beersheba exploded in open territory Thursday morning. Earlier in the morning, Iron Dome rocket defense system intercepted two rockets over Kiryat Gat and Kiryat Malachi. Three rockets also fell in an open area in Kiryat Malachi and the Eshkol and Ashkelon Coast Regional Councils on Thursday morning. 
Israel on Wednesday accepted the U.N. proposal for a five-hour humanitarian pause in the fighting to allow for relief aid into Gaza less than two days after it accepted a more comprehensive ceasefire proposal that was answered by continuous rocket attacks from Gaza. Hamas followed suit and also agreed to the humanitarian pause in the fighting around midnight Wednesday. U.N. Middle East Envoy Robert Seri turned to Major General Yoav Pali Mordechai, Israel's coordinator of government activities in the territories, with the request. A U.N. spokesman said if Israel agreed, Seri would call on groups in Gaza to respect the pause. The development came as Israel continued to delay a much-discussed ground incursion into the Gaza Strip so it could gauge the direction intensive efforts in Cairo and elsewhere were taking to resuscitate the ceasefire plan Hamas rejected on Tuesday. That's from the Jerusalem Post, a jpost.com staff article uh, from today. We continue to focus on uh, what's happening in Israel and pray for our brethren to uh, have a day of peace and calm is it likely? I don't know, but let's hope and pray that, in fact, they get one. Thursday morning broadcast, JM in the AM. Thanks for joining us. Yesterday I uh, came across, and I would bet a lot of people in our audience were um, at some point saw this piece. There was a um, There's so many amazing stories, so many incredible things that come out of these uh, episodes, many silver linings, so to speak, if you will. Yesterday I got this email from Yassi Baumel. A young couple who planned to marry today, Wednesday, had to cancel the wedding due to the security situation. When word of this reached this, they wrote Hesder Yeshiva head, Rabbi David Fendel, and his wife, Rebetzin Mechi, they decided to make it happen anyway. Within 24 hours, with the help of his students, Rabbi Fendel prepared the yeshiva's bomb-proof dining room for the big event, and this afternoon, Chaim Zohar from Ofakim married Ziva from Road. The excitement was tremendous, and for a long time, the rabbi and yeshiva students danced with the groom on the dance floor. In towns adjacent to Stay Road, one could hear the constant sirens and explosions. But the yeshiva students continued the dancing to the delight of the young couple who could not believe how they deserved such help. Things turned out to be very emotional. We didn't plan on this. All we wanted was a shul, a chuppah, as it should be. And they organized us such a surprise. We are speechless, said Zohar. The situation is tense, but it won't prevent us from marrying. We do not fear the rockets. They cannot scare us, and no Hamas in the world will intimidate us. Despite all the rockets, we continue our lives as best and as routinely as possible. The bride said, we didn't expect the whole thing. Today was supposed to be a brief affair, just the wedding ceremony, and then home. And we would have the party a month from now when things calm down. I want to thank everyone, including the yeshiva's donors and everyone who helped out. This is a tremendous simcha, said Rabbi Fendel. They were supposed to have the wedding in an unprotected hall in Ashkelon and would have had to cancel the wedding. We said, why? We have an awesome community here who want to rejoice with you. We have an armored dining room. Just come. This is the solidarity of the Jewish people. Without even knowing the bride and groom, we all rejoice with them and feel this is our simcha. A wedding guest, Adiel Avraham, said, This shows the great power of the Jewish people. While outside everything is gloomy and dark, we continue on. And this is what builds the people and the land. According to him, this is not the first time that the yeshiva has mobilized in a crisis. Whenever there's a problem, 
Everyone knows that Rabbi Fendel always has the solution. Many problems land at his doorstep, and the yeshiva always finds the way to help and support. The yeshiva has been called a beacon of light because that is its influence over the entire area. The yeshiva's purpose is to give as much possible light, like a lighthouse, to help and illuminate the entire area. So that is um, one, as I say, one of the benefits, silver linings, amazing stories, really incredible tales that come out of these episodes. Kalakavod to the yeshiva and stay wrote for coming through for a bride and groom that did not expect their wedding day to be so eventful, frankly, in more ways than one. Kolakavod. Thursday morning broadcast. It's JM in the AM keeping a close eye on what's happening in the Holy Land. Third hour this morning are by Joseph Telushkin. He is the author of Rebbe. The book is subtitled The Life and Teachings of Menachem M. Schneerson, the most influential rabbi in modern history. This book, um, close to 600 pages, has uh, taken on a life of its own. It's just amazing. How many people are reading it? How many people are talking about it? How many people are buying it around the country and around the world? We'll speak to Rabbi Tulushkin, who will be in our studio coming up this morning right here at JM in the AM. Also, Rabbi Yoshua Fass is scheduled. Yesterday, Mark Rosenberg questioned my use of the word hero in regard to those who are making Aliyah this coming Monday with Nefesh Benefesh. I don't know. I can't get away from that term. I'm still thinking they're heroes. They're still proving to everybody the future of the Jewish people is in the state of Israel, even when under fire, even when the worldwide media, I'm sure, will gasp when they are told that hundreds of people are leaving from Kennedy Airport Monday to go to Israel and to move to Israel permanently. We'll be there. We'll be there, please God, on Monday, uh, on the flight, witnessing firsthand people moving to Israel during this time. Very much looking forward to it. I'll include as many reports as I can on Tuesday morning's show. Uh, we'll be leaving right after the JM and the AM program this coming Monday. And uh, we'll get a good feel, a good taste, a good assessment of what it's like to travel with a plane load of people during these times to Israel. People who are ready, who are set, who are committed to establish their homes and put down their roots in the Holy Land. Rabbi Fass is scheduled to join us in the 7 o'clock hour this morning. We are very much anxious to speak with him and looking forward to it a great deal. More coming up, Sphira, Sphira format. Uh, yet another album that's called Sphira. Uh, three weeks format, acapella style. This is JM in the AM.
Speaking of breaking news, this has just been revealed, and we'll go to our news from Israel in a moment. Israel and Hamas have agreed to an Egyptian proposal for a ceasefire that would put an end to the 10-day operation in Gaza. This according to the BBC. The British news network quoted an Israeli official as saying that the two sides have agreed to a deal that takes effect Friday at 6 a.m. That would be 11 p.m. tonight, Eastern Time. 
There has yet to be official confirmation from either the Israeli government or Hamas in the Gaza Strip of the BBC report. Channel 10 Thursday quoted an Israeli official as saying that the BBC report was, quote, incorrect. An Israeli delegation was in Cairo Thursday for Egyptian-mediated ceasefire talks with Hamas aimed at bringing the latest round of fighting to an end. So an Israeli official said no. There are reports in the BBC that it's a yes. We'll find out soon, I guess, whether it's official or not. The rumor, the report from the Jerusalem Post is that the BBC is reporting that a ceasefire will take effect Friday, 6 a.m., which would be 11 p.m. tonight, Eastern Time. Uh, it's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial and around the world on the web, jmnam.org. Rabbi Yoshua Fast, Nefesh Benefesh expected to be uh, calling in. Bottom of the hour. Eight o'clock hour by Joseph Telushkin with the brand new book, Rebbe. It's coming up. He'll be live in studio here at JM and the AM. Galitzal, Israel Army Radio, 2 p.m. newscast for a Thursday follows next. Boker Tov from JM and the AM. Galitzal, Ashashtayim, Kan Shibel Karmi Mansur, רשת BBC מדווחת בדקות האחרונות שמחר בשש בבוקר תחל הפסקת אש ממושכת בין ישראל לחמאס. בישראל מחישים את הדיווח. בתוך כך בשעה זו נפגש ראש הרשות הפלסטינית אבו מאזן עם נשיא מצרים הסיסי בקהיר. כתבנו ג'קי חוגי. בפגישתם ינסו סיסי ואבו מאזן להתגבר על שלושה אתגרים. הרושם השלילי של קריסת ההודנה שלשום, דרישת חמאס ממצרים לפתוח לצמיתות את מעבר רפיח, והמעורבות העצמאית של קטר מאחורי הקלעים, קטר שאיננה אוהדת את מצרים. אתמול נפגש עבאס בקהיר עם בכיר חמאס אבו מרזוק, ומחר הוא ימשיך לאנקרה. הופרה הפוגת האש ההומניטרית. לפני שעתיים נורו שלוש רקטות לעבר המועצה האזורית אשכול. הן התפוצצו בשטחים פתוחים מבלי לגרום לנפגעים או לנזק. בנוסף, הותרה נפילה של רקטה שככל הנראה נורתה בשעות הבוקר ממגורים של עובדים זרים במועצה האזורית מרחבים. גם שם איש לא נפגע. במערכת הביטחון בודקים אפשרות שבחמאס דחו את הפסקת האש שהציעו המצרים ביום שלישי כדי לבצע את פיגוע המנהרה שסוכל הבוקר. כתבנו רמי שני. ארגון החמאס ברצועת עזה חיפש לעצמו הישג משמעותי איכותי כדי להכתיב את התנאים להפסקת האש. משום כך מעריכים במערכת הביטחון סירב הפלג הצבאי של הארגון למתווה המצרי להפסקת העירי על יישובי הארץ שהוצג באמצע השבוע וקיבל את הסכמת ירושלים. ההערכה היא כי ראשי הארגון רצו להמתין עד להוצאתו לפועל של פיגוע המנהרה שסוכל הבוקר כדי להתייצב בפני המתווכים עם התנאים המוכרים של שחרור מחבלים והפסקת המצור על הרצועה כשקני רובים מכוונים אל בני ערובה. פעולת צה"ל הבוקר סיכלה את הכוונה, עם זאת מעריכים בצה"ל ובמערכת הביטחון שאיום המנהרות עדיין קיים. חברת הכנסת מירי רגב קראה בתוכניתנו מצד שני להיכנס לרצועה כדי למגר את הטרור שם, גם במחירים כבדים. כי דרג נבחר חושש לקחת אה, אה, סוג של החלטה שנכון שתביא להרבה מאוד הרוגים. מה יקרה אם ניכנס לעזה עם הרוגים? אם אלה השאלות שהיינו שואלים את עצמנו, היינו עושים למלחמות אחרות, אני חושבת שזה בוודאי ייקח יותר מחודש, חודשיים, שלושה. נשיא המדינה שמעון פרס משיב לטענות על הרג אזרחים חפים מפשע בעזה. הוא נשמע בסיור בדרום. חיל אוויר בחר בעצמו לעשות כל מאמץ שלא לפגוע באף אזרח. ויש הרבה מקרים שהטייסים זיהו ילדים ועצרו את ההפצצה 
כדי לא לפגוע בהם. ואם שום מקרה אין אדישות לגבי חיי אדם, ובוודאי שזהירות כפולה ומכופלת לגבי ילדים. כתב אישום הוגש בצהריים נגד שלושה תושבי אזור ירושלים בגין רצח הנער הערבי מוחמד אבו חדר משועפאט. כתבנו רומלי אור. על פי כתב האישום שהוגש נגד אדם בן 29 ושני קטינים בני 16, השלושה יצאו למסע ציד אדם שנמשך שעות כלשונם, ובמהלכו חטפו ורצחו השלושה את אבו חדר, תוך קריאות בשמם של שלושת החטופים הישראלים שנרצחו זמן קצר לפני כן. שניים מהנאשמים מואשמים גם בניסיון חטיפה ותקיפה הגורמת חבלה של ממש, בגין ניסיון חטיפתו של ילד בן שבע וחצי בערב שלפני רצח אבו חדר. התחזית מחר ללא שינוי. אלה החדשות שעורך הדר שיפר. Well, you heard Galei Tzal news in Hebrew. Mayor Weingarten will now try to, um, and not try, I'm sure he'll be successful, in explaining to us in English uh, some of the things that we learned at the top of the hour. Mayor Weingarten, welcome back to JM in the AM. Thank you very much, Nachum Boker Tov. Um, so first, the BBC report, tell us. Yeah, BBC is reporting that there is an agreement for a ceasefire, not just like uh, the one that's now, which is a few hours, but a... a long, longer-term ceasefire between Israel and Hamas to begin tomorrow morning, Friday morning, at 6 a.m. So far, Israel has denied the report. So, quite frankly, it is very confusing because uh, the BBC is a very well-respected news service around the world, and they've got they, they didn't just make it up. So. Yeah, you can't imagine, well, maybe you can these days, that a news service like them right. would go ahead and report something like that Right. Without being sure of it. Right. Now, one of the theories um, that I just heard um, uh, while I was listening to Galit Sahal, I had my eye on the Israeli television, was that the Hamas, everyone seems to agree that the Hamas wants to have a, a, a ceasefire because they're getting, they're getting tzamatered, as we say. <laughs> yeah. Is that, um, no, is that an official military uh, term? Well, I, I think that's a, an Israeli military term. I don't think Hamas uses that. Yeah. But... Um, they're, they're getting really, hit really bad, and everything they're trying isn't working. The rockets aren't working because they're getting shot down. They tried twice um, to infiltrate through the um, Mediterranean, and that both were shot down. And this morning, there was a huge uh, attempt. Thirteen terrorists actually made it in to Israel through this uh, underground tunnel that they dug. And that also didn't succeed because Baruch Hashem, Tzahal was right there and, and took care of them. Um, and that the re- and, and, and their, their people are suffering and they're getting hit and hit and they're not being successful. So they actually are losing and they want to have a ceasefire. On the other hand, why didn't they take the ceasefire that Israel offered them uh, two days ago? And the, the, the thought is that maybe it's because they knew about this big tunnel invasion. They were hoping mm. that if that's successful, then they have what to show. They need to show some success to their people and say, okay, we've accomplished this, and now it's okay to go to ceasefire. It, now they'd have to go into a ceasefire agreement without having accomplished anything. 
Um, this was their way of saving face, so to speak. Possibly, possibly. But it turns out that Israeli um, intelligence knew about the tunnel, even though it was not, you know, obviously the Israeli side wasn't open yet. Uh, but they, they had intelligence about it, and they were sitting there for days. They had soldiers around that area where the tunnel ended, um, uh, sleeping there and, and actually camping out there for days and days, waiting for these guys to come up. If this ceasefire for tomorrow morning is real, then there'll be a lot of frustrated people if the ground forces didn't go in. Yeah, uh, more than that, there'll be a lot of frustrated people that'll say, well, what, what did we accomplish? We're, we're, we're right back where we started from. Um, they, uh, unless as part of this agreement they are going to demilitarize Gaza, which I believe is absolutely not possible. In, in this agreement, I would say it's not possible. Sure it's possible, but it would take a much longer agreement. So Israelis will be very frustrated, especially the people in the South. People in the South keep saying, look, we'll sit in these, you know, we'll run to the shelters 20 times a day for as long as you need us to. We're strong and we're, we're determined and we're going to do it, but finish the job. We don't want to have to go through this again. This is now the third time. And this will simply buy a certain amount of time. We don't know how much, but right. we'll just well, buy. The last one bought a year and a half. Right. The one before bought three years. So you see that the time, and, and don't forget the first one, there was a ground incursion. The second one, there wasn't. Right. So, you, so that's the way they feel. On the other hand, the government is very, very scared of going in because uh, it, it would, it, it, it it could be massive loss of life, but definitely loss of life of the soldiers. But Mayor Weingarten with us as we discuss what's happening in Israel. Top of the hour news report from the BBC that there could be a ceasefire in effect. Six o'clock Israel time tomorrow morning. Um, we know, I shouldn't say we know. It, it seems, it appears to us, and this might just be because of the type of people that I hang out with that, uh, as you just described, the majority of people in the South, or at least a significant number, are ready to endure what you just described. Right. Has the Israeli media um, turned yet against the government's decisions to continue striking Gaza? You keep a close eye on what's happening on Israeli television, on radio, in the newspapers. Um, is, is it any different today than two weeks ago? Oh, just the opposite. Uh, this is exactly Netanyahu's problem. He's being totally supported by the media. That's why he's losing his base. Wow. <laughs> I mean, that's why we see people like Danny Danone uh, right. challenging him. That, that's exactly right. Danny Danone, Victor Lieberman. You, you, you know, even worse than you know, he fired Danny Danone because Danny Danone, he can fire him and and nothing will happen. Right. But, but Avigdor Lieberman had a press conference. Forget about making statements. He had a press conference in which he said the same thing that Danone was saying. He can't fire Avigdor Lieberman because then there'll be elections in a few months. But, um, but, but uh, you know, the, he's being praised by the left, and he's being excoriated by the right. You know, so it's, it's very hard to tell. Look, it's a, thankfully, I am not in this position. Yeah, understood. And I will not run, even if I'm here. <laughs> the um, are you surprised when you watch Israeli television now? Like, is it is it unusual? No, because it's not. Look, it's not like they're going rah rah. Let's go. You know, we're great. To, no, it's not. In fact, I'm infuriated when I watch it because they, they on every panel they have um, some 
person from the fringe left, including yesterday, they had Haver Knesset Zahalta. This guy is, uh, I, don't, I don't want to use certain terms, but he, he, is he anti-Semitic? That's for sure. I mean, he, he's an out-and-out hater of, of, of Israel, a hater of Jews, and he says the most hor- horrific things, and they have him in the middle of a war on television as part of a panel. It's, wow. it's sickening. It's sickening. But they keep the mantra over and over again of, no, there's no, we shouldn't go in, we shouldn't go in, there's no, there's no military solution, there's no, no military, there can only be a political solution, and every once in a while they'll have one or two spokespeople who will say, that's nonsense. Of course there's a military solution. We just have to want to be willing to go for it. But, you know, that unfortunately the people of Israel keep hearing that message over and over and over again. Wow. All right, Mayor Weingarten, keeping a close eye on what's going on. Let's see what happens. You know, in in in, <laughs> you don't know what to pray for anymore. On one side, you want to pray that there's permanent peace because of the strength of the Israeli army and air force, and on the other side, you pray that there's a ceasefire because, let's face it, we have a lot of friends and relatives in Israel. So yeah, we pray that, like we say in the Tefillah Shalom Hamdina, that a Kadosh Baruch Hu should give the, the Seichel, you know, give give the proper decision-making uh, tools to the leadership, that they make the right decisions and do the right things. And ultimately, as we sit here, um, I think it's important that we support those decisions, whatever they may be. No question. Mayor, thank you. Have a good day. Thursday morning, it's JM in the AM.
Excuse me, I keep saying that with our three weeks format Thursday here at JM and the AM. Reports from the BBC that there could be a ceasefire in Israel or that they expect there to be a ceasefire in Israel. Uh, tomorrow at 6 a.m. Israel time. Uh, some are denying it on the Israeli side. Pay careful attention to that news story. Rabbi Yoshua Fass, the founder of Nefesh Benefesh, is expected to join us in the next few minutes. We are looking forward to Monday. We'll be on the flight with Nefesh Benefesh as... Uh, Hundreds of Olim head from North America to the Holy Land. Not one has canceled. Not one has postponed. It is simply remarkable. And we are looking forward to being with them on that flight. Oh, I'll feel awful when I land there and I'm the only one who's not a Jewish hero, but I'll feel great just seeing the whole scene and being part of it. It's going to be amazing. And by the way, Nefesh Benefesh will, of course, have it online. You'll be able to view it. As it's happening, the uh, big gathering in Israel is the plain lands, and as the people come off and start celebrating and are met by family and friends, we'll give you the details on that coming up right here at JM in the AM. Rabbi Joseph Talushkin is going to be in our studio at 8 o'clock, and I am very excited, to say the least. He is author of the brand-new book, Rebbe, The Life and Teachings of Menachem M. Schneerson, the most influential rabbi in modern history. This book is flying off the shelves, and for good reason. It's an amazing read. And um, Rabbi Joseph Talushkin is going to be visiting us in studio here this morning at JM in the AM. I am looking forward to it. He is expected to spend the entire 8 o'clock hour with us. 7.30 in the morning are by David Goldwasser's words. Zecher Nishmas Harav Zebin Rosef Halevi. Here is Rabbi David Goldwasser with Morning Chizuk. Good morning. The Gemara in the Dorim poses the question, Why was the Beis Hamikdash destroyed? Why were we exiled from our land? We learn that this was asked of the Chachomim and the Nevi'im. They were unable to answer the question until Hashem himself, Kavyachol, explained it. The reason given for the destruction of the Beis Hamikdash was that B'nai Yisrael no longer recited the Berchas HaTorah first prior to learning. The great Sadiq Rabbi Yitzhak Blazer says in his Sefer Koich Ve'ar that this Gemara is interesting because we can observe that the question is even more complex. The difficulty is in how Klal Yisrael declined to such a degree in their own Avodah Hashem that it precipitated the decree by Hashem to destroy the Beis Amikdosh. In connection to this, two Gemaras are cited. Chazal tell us in Kedushin 
that Hashem said, I created the Sahara, I created the Torah as an antidote. Furthermore, we learn in Masech the Saita that the Torah shields us and protects us when we're involved in learning Torah. The obvious question is, the people of that generation, they were involved in Torah learning continually. Their only transgression was that they didn't make the bracha tchila. How is it possible then that the Torah didn't safeguard them and prevent them from sinking to such a low level that it ultimately resulted in the destruction of the Beis HaMikdosh? Some of Farshim offer the explanation that the people felt that the pleasure derived from learning could only be attained after it was understood and they had totally grasped its concepts. A brach, on the other hand, is made when the enjoyment one anticipates is a given. They therefore made a determination on their own that they couldn't make the bracha before they had actually engaged in the study of Torah. The Sefer Leismet so comments that Tchila, first, is the key to what transpired. The learning of Torah in itself was not a Tchila, a priority in their life. The Vilna Goin clarifies this view with the Gemara. We learned that at one point, when David was fleeing from Shola Melech, he came close enough to Shaul that he was able to stiltily cut off a corner of Shaul's robe. Subsequently, we learn in Melochim that David Melech was old. They covered him with garments, but he did not become warm. Clothing are intended to warm one's body. This is a special bequest from Hashem. However, after David displayed disrespect to the article of clothing, Hashem's gift no longer had the power it was intended for, and its capacity to warm the body was removed. So to a Torah, the spiritual power of Torah provides a protection against the bad. However, if the person mistreats the Torah and doesn't give the Torah its due respect, he doesn't make the Birchas Torah before learning. Then his Torah no longer possesses the gift or power to save him from the Sahara. This has been Rabbi David Goldwasser bringing you morning chizik. Have a nice day. I know I have to be careful if I'm going to keep my commitment about the three weeks format that I really can't put this theme song on. So maybe we'll just leave it in the background for a couple of seconds. Making Aliyah Today. You know the song if you're familiar with JM and the AM. And of course, it's the way we introduce our amazing friend, Rabbi Yoshua, Rabbi Josh Fass, who is the co-founder of Nefesh Benefesh. And this coming Monday, I am looking forward to be part of this incredible journey. I'm the only one that will not be in the category of Jewish hero, but I get to travel with hundreds of Jewish heroes as the first major charter Aliyah flight of the season of this summer leaves from Kennedy Airport and heads from North America to Israel as uh, Olim Chadashim, brand new uh, residents of the state of Israel, are ready to put down their roots in the Holy Land. No cancellations, no postponements. Everybody's ready, even at this time, to go ahead and uh, and uh, recognize the fact and do something about the fact that the future of the Jewish people is in the state of Israel. Rabbi Josh Fass, welcome back to JM in the AM. 
Thank you so much for having me. It is obvious from our very short conversation off the air moments ago that as excited as you are about every flight, whether it be a group flight, charter flight, etc., there's something extra special about this one. Why is it that you sound a little more giddy about this coming Monday? Giddy, that's a good word. Um, (laughs) uh, There's there's an extra level of excitement uh, both here in Israel about this flight and I think within the Olim who are planning to come to the airport on Monday. Uh, The fact that over the last uh, week and a half we've had a real conflict here in Israel and where the anticipation of the Israeli audience is an assumption that people are going to defer their aliyah or cancel it. And then when they hear that not a single individual has canceled or deferred their aliyah, and that every single seat is full, and everyone who has been planning for last week, for the last few weeks and last few months, are still on that plane on Monday, and has given such a booster shot of of, uh, of optimism, of of encouragement, of chizuk to to people here in Israel, and people just can't get over it. So that receptivity that we're going to, and that energy, and that just pride of what the Olim are doing, that's going to be felt as we're feeling it now, but I'm sure it will increase over the next few days. And also the Olim, their their personal decision um, has taken on another added level of, of strengthening their brothers and sisters in Israel, also sending a, a very clear message to the world that this is our homeland, and nothing will deter us, this is where we belong, and we're going to continue to fulfill the fate of our Jewish people. And uh, that added level of meaning to their personal decision of Aliyah has taken on a, a tremendous significance as well. Well said. And and what's interesting is that just logistically, you know, because of what's going on, you'd think that, I don't know, especially among the singles out there, maybe, you know, those with a more flexible schedule, that they that for whatever reason, again, you know, something could happen within their own uh, family or, you know, people who are traveling back and forth who they're depending on to be in Israel. Whatever the case may be, you'd think that at least one would have a reason to pursue bone uh, at this time even for uh, you know even until your august flight but it's amazing how that flight will be full on monday and that nobody has altered their plans by the way i do want to mention that is the number one we said this yesterday i plan on being on that plane and boy am i looking forward to it it's going to be another amazing experience with nefesh benefesh watching this super bowl of aliyah take place right before my eyes but i do want to remind everybody that on the 21st of July, there will be a live webcast. You'll be able to see everything that goes on from when the plane lands and as the celebration begins at Ben Gurion Airport. It is an incredible, an amazing sight. There are people who are up all night watching it. Uh, all you got to do is go to nbn.org.il slash live, nbn.org.il slash live, and you'll be able to access the uh, incredible webcast. I'm sure even you are amazed after all these years. You know, the first time is one thing, Rabbi Fast, but after all these years, you have so many devoted and new viewers who continue to watch every single time. It's it's extremely emotionally charged event, and uh, I, this is flight number fifty one for me. Wow, charter flight fifty one. I'm not talking. We're not even counting the the close to two hundred group flights, right? But this is charter flight fifty one, and it's as oh, that's right. We were on now, fifty. That's right. I'm as giddy as uh, as 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 I uh, usually talk, talk about the ones uh, years ago about the the upcoming flight. That's right. We were on fifty, if you recall. That we was were on fifty. We were on fifty. So now we get to start the next half a century of uh, of of flights. Um, th- tell me about you know. I asked this to to Mark Rosenberg yesterday. Uh, it always seems to me 
that when you're away from this situation, as tense, and I'm not minimizing what everybody young and old is going through in Israel. You know, I would never do that, and I believe me, our prayers are with everybody, and we hope that the ceasefire, at least from the angle of getting some shalom v'shalva in Israel, does in fact take effect tomorrow morning or earlier. Uh, but it always seems to me that when you're not in this situation, there's more worry, more tension. Because you're betocha inyan, because you're actually going through this whole situation, is it in any way, I don't know, a little different than for us who are watching from thousands of miles away? I would divide it. I, think, I agree psychologically that whenever you're removed from anything, um, things are exacerbated until you're betocha inyan, until you're, you're rolling up your sleeves and you're close and there's a proximity to whatever you're experiencing. Let's say, God forbid, a family member is sick and you're a thousand miles away or a hundred miles away. Obviously, everything gets uh, exaggerated or exacerbated. You feel you're pining to be close to that, to that situation. So obviously, when you're closer to things, a, a different reality and a different context sets in. So, yes, I'm, I'm sure, and I see it, people from afar, they're seeing every single siren, they're seeing every single, uh, every single Iron Dome interception, right. and uh, they're holding their breath. Uh, sadly, with anything, you, you habituate yourself to any situation, you get used to situations, and here it's been a, it's been a week and a half, there have been scary moments, and you get used to some of, the, some of these issues. Um, however, that's, that's for most of the country, but individuals living in the South are really... Uh, are really uh, having a difficult time. It's been uh, countless, countless uh, dozens of, uh, of air raids uh, every single day. It's just, it's grains on one's nerves, and uh, we've been trying to help our Olim living in the South to try to give them some extra support uh, that uh, over the last few days. And we hope, I mean, we're getting rumors out of Cairo right now, we're hoping that uh, that the ceasefire really takes effect uh, soon. Uh, you've given us a very uh, good overview of a very complicated situation. Rabbi Fass, curious uh, for your uh, impression about the following. I, and this is not to condemn anybody from any previous generation. Believe me, circumstances are never the same. You don't want to judge anybody till you're in their shoes, etc., etc. But it seems, uh, just like we've pointed out, how it's amazing how the yeshiva kids from this area are heading to the Israeli army at a much higher rate than when we were in school with them, right? You still agree with that. It's, it's a to- totally different situation. And we do know that back, you know, 20 years ago in that era, there, there were people who it seemed, you know, were, were ready, you know, for, for whatever reason they decided to leave Israel at a time like this. And it seems like, I don't know, there are less people, that this is the way it seems, the less people who are, who are, who are desperately trying to leave Israel. Uh, it seems that the corridor of activity between North America and Israel, which was empty during certain eras, is still active, maybe not as active as we wish, but is still active. Um, would you say it's all one and the same, that there's some type of spirit in this current generation that has just elevated us in terms of people who live outside of Israel and the feeling we have for the Holy Land? I think there's, uh, there's much more of a palpable connectivity. I think the world is much smaller. I think we've experienced the uh, Israel experiences much more than previous generations. We've tasted what it means to, uh, to experience Israel on a micro level. And I think people have couldn't almost envision them that, that experience on a macro level. I think just logistically we've created more opportunities of connectivity in our generation. And I think just we've experienced, uh, this generation um, a lot of different events that have solidified uh, a certain emotional connectivity. So I agree with you. I think there is there is a trend. I, I hope over the next few years it starts to translate 
in real exponential growth of Aliyah numbers in North America, which should be, which we should expect. But I would love to see it actualized. Because uh, you're expecting, and I've heard you say this before, you are expecting at some point there is going, at some point in the next few, whatever it is, I guess we'd say years at this point, some type of massive explosion in the world of North American Aliyah. As, as great as it's been till this point, you'd expect there's going to be an upswing of tremendous proportion. I, I, I see. You, you, you look at data from, the, from 1948 and you see the statistics of how many people are coming and how many people are thriving and the retention rates, and you get to a certain tipping point with any statistical phenomenon. Right. And when you get to that tipping point, then we'll see a real jump Hopefully, Hashem, a, a, a jump within the exponential statistics of Aliyah. Your July flight is more family than singles and those heading to the Army compared to August? Correct. August is a remarkably different-looking flight than the July flight. July flight, we have 29 families which contribute to 100 children on this plane. So get, a, you know, get enough sleep before you get on the plane <laughs> because you're not going to get any on the plane. We have 54 singles. On the plane, we have, you know, of those 21 soldiers going straight into the Army. Um, we have three families who are landing and going straight to the south. Oh, my 35 gosh. individuals are moving to the periphery, but three families going straight to the south, which is incredible and heroic, and they haven't uh, uh, changed and altered any of their plans whatsoever. We have uh, just beautiful stories. We have an 88-year-old uh, Auschwitz survivor who is celebrating his birthday on the flight. Oh, my And he's gosh. being reunited with his grandson, who is a lone soldier in Israel. And that's going to be a very, very emotional reunion oh my gosh. Um, of just uh, the implications of what it means to have a grandson fighting in the Army for you, you know, celebrating your birthday, being an Auschwitz survivor. It's, it's, it's a lot. Um, we have uh, an individual who was who was uh, a girl from Cleveland who was here for the last Amud Anan, um, <laughs> and was in the South, and and now and and she she concretized her decision to make Aliyah when that was happening in the South two years ago, and now she's making Aliyah again <laughs> during Sukaitan, a, a different kind of mission, the Defensive Edge, and we're seeing. We're seeing interesting things. We're seeing, you know, in February we announced on your show that we were doing something different. We were finally giving the dentist exams, the dental exams and licensing in America for the right. first time. Right. And for the first time we have a person who took that exam and passed that exam and making Aliyah with his family. So we're seeing already the fruits of our labor of trying to change the, the bureaucracy, trying to, to ease the process, trying to have individuals receive license approval already before they make Aliyah, and that itself prompted already family just weeks after to make Aliyah. But we're seeing a whole different trend of individuals, even though I've said many times before that 80% of the Olim come to Israel without having jobs lined up. We see a trend on this flight of individuals who have already lined up employment waiting for them upon arrival. We have two Google um, individuals, one Ernst & Young, another physician going to Shari Tzedek, which is also interesting to see the families already uh, buffing the system, um, having jobs already uh, waiting for them, for, which, is, which is unique uh, for when upon their aliyah. So uh, they're, they're very beautiful stories on the plane. Uh, obviously, when you see families and their children and uh, the excitement and the stresses, of families making Aliyah, it, it creates a very different atmosphere. It's a different energy, um, which you've seen on different flights, and uh, every flight has its own different uh, special culture, special energy to it. 
August is going to be very dominated from by like almost 140 chayilim bodedim, lone soldiers on the plane. It's a more more singles than families. This is more of a family and children flight. We love being we love being at the forefront of the Jewish media, paying careful attention to the nefesh benefesh flights. Do you think that Monday you'll attract the general media because of the situation in Israel? Let me tell you, we've we've almost every single Israel uh, news outlet, both uh, online and print, have have shown interest in either joining the flight or covering the flight because of just the phenomenon of individuals from North America making Aliyah despite and uh, and ha- un- undeterred. And we have a lot of interest as well from international press as well of covering it. And hopefully this gives us the opportunity to also show Jewish pride, show Israel pride, set the record straight also to international media, using these moments to leverage it to get good Hasbara, good PR for Israel as well. Right, because you'll be asked on Monday about the, uh, you know... Oh, I'm, I'm sure we will be asked right. a whole host of questions. Exactly. You'll be asked about what Israel's doing and uh, and about all the collateral damage, etc. And uh, everyone and we'll needs... Given, to... We'll be given an opportunity to really uh, set things straight and to give great PR for Israel. I do want to remind everybody that the entire live webcast will be on the Nefesh Benefesh site, nbn.org.il slash live. It's really simple. The second... Uh, uh, the second that plane lands in Israel, you'll be able to start seeing the beginning and then the, uh, the incredible, in its entirety, the incredible celebration that takes place in Ben Gurion Airport before everyone uh, splits up and goes to the different areas of the country, which will uh, have new people uh, arriving and establishing routes in the Holy Land. Information about all of this, because I would bet that there are some people out there right now who are inspired by this conversation to uh, start the Aliyah process, you can go to nbn.org.il, nbn.org.il, 866-4-ALIYAH. That's the number four and then Aliyah, 866-4-ALIYAH. Monday morning, I am here, which means I'll give everyone the uh, up-to-the-minute, last-minute details regarding the flight. Tuesday, I'll be in Israel. You'll hear from me after the Nefesh Benefesh flight as I look forward to traveling with the hundreds of Jewish heroes. And then Wednesday, back in the studio where... Um, We'll be able to continue our conversation and to talk about one of the highlights of the summer. A lot of people say it's a rough summer in Israel. Well, rough or not, this is certainly one of the highlights of the Israeli summer, the big Aliyah flight for July heading from Kennedy Airport this coming Monday. Rabbi Fass, I look forward to being with you. It is going to be something extra special. Kolakavod to you and your staff. You again have made it happen. And uh, to you, it feels like it's a completely new experience, which is the greatest thing of all. Absolutely. Thank you so much. We look forward to Thank seeing you, you next Nachum. week. Thank you, Nachum. Looking forward to seeing you on Monday. Bezrat Hashem. Rabbi Yoshua Fass is co-founder of Nefesh Benefesh. We will be on the 51st charter flight this coming Monday. And yes, I am very anxious to meet the grandfather and grandchildren that Rabbi Fass just spoke about, the grandfather being an Auschwitz survivor, and I'm anxious to meet all the other people that represent so many incredible stories of modern Jewish history and this incredible move to Israel during the 21st century. It's all coming up. We'll we'll have that experience Monday, and we'll share it with you Tuesday from Israel uh, right here at JM in the AM. Nine minutes before 8 o'clock. Coming up in the at the top of the 8 o'clock hour by Joseph Talushkin. He is author of the brand-new book, Rebbe, The Life and Teachings of Menachem M. Schneerson, the most influential rabbi in modern history. We are honored to be speaking with him in the 8 o'clock hour this morning. Keep it right here at JM in the AM.
Format Thursday, 8 o'clock in the morning, and this is America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning radio program. Heard and listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial, and around the world on the web, jmtheam.org. The brand new book, which has uh, certainly made an impact uh, around this entire world, is, in call, is called Rebbe, The Life and Teachings of of Menachem M. Schneerson, the most influential rabbi in modern history. The author is Joseph Telushkin, who I've been anxious to meet for the last, I would say, 30 years or so, and I am honored that he is visiting us this morning here at JM at the AM. Thank you so much for being here. Good morning to you. Good morning, Nachum. I'm very, very pleased to be here. Back in the late 70s and early 80s, it was your, I guess, first book, if there was one before that you could tell us, Eight Questions. At that time, it was known as Eight Questions. That is correct. People ask about Judaism. It had a major impact on me in my high school and college years. And since then, you should know, in all seriousness, I've been anxious to speak with you and meet you, and today I have the opportunity. By the way, how did Eight become Nine? What was the question that was added? Do you remember before we talk about this book? Uh, yeah, I'll tell you how it became Nine. <laughs> when my friend Dennis Prager and I wrote the book, we were in our mid-20s, and uh, we self-published it. And some years later, Simon and Schuster bought it from us, and they said, look, we don't want to lose all of your old readers. Maybe So we edited the book, because it was six years later. We right. made it better. And they asked us to add on a question, and the question they asked us to add on is still relevant. Is there a difference between anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism? Fantastic. Irrelevant is not the word. Every every young Jewish kid right. should be reading that question mm-hmm. and getting the answer to it. So I thank you. It was a uh, a remarkable experience back then reading your books, and great to meet you today. Was it a scary experience to write this book about the Lubavitcher Rebbe? And I'll tell you what I mean. Um, uh, look, you you and your family knew the Rebbe somewhat too relatively well, depending who in your family it was. And I'm sure that you were thinking during the five years of your research how uncomfortable the Rebbe would be that somebody is writing about him. 
At the same time, I have a feeling, knowing the greatness of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, that he also felt that if someone could gain, could enhance their life by reading about his life, that would be a big bonus. So how would you put it? Scary experience or just the opposite? Well, first of all, I think your perception is correct. I think the Rebbe would have been personally uncomfortable having his life examined because he was about Torah, right. you know, not, not his person. But I think he would react, as you said, if, they, if that examination could lead people closer, he would like it. Well, number one, I didn't go in thinking I was going to spend five years. I went in thinking it was going to be two years. And then what happened is the incredible amount of data that there was available, the number of people to interview, the 200 volumes of, of teachings of the Rebbe, you know, made it a very, very demanding thing. And there was another reason why it took five years and not two. The Rebbe very rarely spoke about himself. So it's very hard to write a biography of a person who was as unself-revealing as the Rebbe was. And so, so much of the conclusions and so much of the material in the book came from interviewing people and in their interactions with the Rebbe, you could glean things about the Rebbe. It was scary at the beginning. It, it, this was the longest it's ever taken me to find my voice in writing a book. I haven't generally done biographies. And uh, to try and capture the Rebbe in a way that really represents, that I tried to really represent the way he thought and the way he spoke, and I'm not arrogant enough to say I did it fully, but I think I got some intimations of it. It took me, That actually did take me two years until I was sort of stylistically writing and had captured the voice I wanted to capture. This is a HarperCollins release, correct? That's correct. And maybe that helps, but nonetheless, it, it must be surprising to most observers in the literary world that this has become a New York Times bestseller, that it's at the top of the list everywhere, and it's become a worldwide sensation. How, Joseph Telushkin, do you explain it? By the way, it's interesting, uh, a friend of my daughter's who was applying for a position at the New Yorker, walked in, and he noticed on the desk of the editor was a copy of the book. And this friend of hers was, you know, a religious kid. He was wearing a kippah. So the editor picked up the book and said, it's now number 15 on Amazon. Who would have thought? Exactly. How do you explain it? The well, one of the points I make in the book, and the subtitle of the book, is that he's not only the most influential, I actually think he's the most well-known rabbi mm. since Maimonides. He's known in a lot of circles, not just in the from world. First of all, Chabadnik's photograph is, is recognized in many places. Right. The only rabbi who ever got the Congressional Gold Medal, and the two co-sponsors of it were John Lewis, the civil rights icon and very close associate of Martin Luther King, and who actually said on the day that he was given the Congressional Gold Medal, I only regret that Dr. King never met him. And his co-sponsor was Newt Gingrich, a rather conservative Republican. And uh, Lewis said this is probably the only issue on which Gingrich and I <laughs> have ever had occasion to agree. So then you'll wonder, okay, so number one, there were non-Jews. I'll tell you an odd detail about the book. Amazon categorizes books in many, many categories. And for the first month after the book came out, and it sounds weird, but the book was number one in the category of Christian leadership. <laughs> now, obviously, it meant that Christians who were looking for books on religious leadership 
were taken by this. So then you think, okay, so there'll be certain religious Christians interested. Right. Then you find out that Eric Yaffe, the longtime president of the Union for Reform Judaism, in 2003 declared at a convention of the Union with thousands of people present. It's hard for me to say this, but I must say it nonetheless. We have to learn from the example of Chabad wow. and from the example of the Rebbe. Wow. And then, of course, there's the Rebbe's impact throughout the Orthodox world. Right in which he really starts the whole Baal Tshuva movement, the whole notion of reaching out to Jews that with any one mitzvah you can get you can capture somebody. And the traditional attitude in the Orthodox world was more of an all or nothing attitude. And so suddenly people realized we have a lot to learn from the Rebbe as well. So I think there was like an upsurge of interest. You know, something just struck me as you're speaking about this. The um to us in the Orthodox community, so you know, Chabad means a certain thing, and obviously it has an impact. And if you know, if you're in Singapore, you have a place to eat and all that uh, at the Chabad house. But we sometimes forget or don't realize how people in you know in every state in the Union and everywhere around the world notice these rabbis and meet with them and and see the Rebbe's emissaries constantly. So it's it's it's, it's the whole network that he established that really makes him as influential, as popular, and as well known as he was and continues to be. Okay, so here's my trivia question for you. Chabad is now represented in 49 of the 50 states. I have to admit, Rabbi Stone from Chabad of the Lower East Side just told me this. I'm going to know the answer. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I believe I believe Mississippi just got it, right? Mississippi did, so now so it's South only Dakota. South Dakota. <laughs> and in about 80 countries. So my wow. friend Dennis Prager was at the Chabad house having a Shabbat meal with 15 other Jews in Phnom Penh, Cambodia. And this is another aspect of the Rebbe that gets to the heart of this. He initiates what, as far as I can tell, is the first attempt in all of Jewish history to reach every Jewish community and every Jew in the world. And that was a very, very remarkable attempt. Jonathan Sachs, of course, the former chief rabbi of England, puts it in a very poetic way, and Sachs creates very powerful images. He said, if the Nazis tried to hunt down every Jew in hate, the Rebbe wanted to hunt hunt down every Jew in love. And he was therefore willing to reach out in a variety of ways. Obviously, one aspect of it, the Rebbe was an enormous Talmud Chacham. He was an enormous scholar of the traditional Jewish texts, was constantly conducting Hadranim, you know, when he had completed Talmudic texts, and he wanted his followers to be aware, and that's why he spoke and learning a great deal. But he also wanted to do outreach to all Jews at whatever level uh, he could reach them. And he knew that any mitzvah had the capacity to reach. This is what I'm going to say now is not widely known. When the Rebbe initiated one of the campaigns most associated with Chabad, the Tefillin campaign, mm-hmm. in which people would be stopped on the street, are you Jewish? Have you put on Tefillin? In segments of the Orthodox world, he was widely criticized. Now, we could understand why less observant Jews might be very uncomfortable with Jews doing this in public. It's embarrassing. But why in the Orthodox world? Because there were certain figures who felt that non-observant Jews shouldn't be putting on tefillin. A person's going to put on tefillin, and then he'll be eating unkosher food in a restaurant. A woman's going to light Shabbat candles and then violate other Shabbat laws. And the Rebbe's innovative thinking was every mitzvah can be the vehicle through which you lead a person back. And if you have that innate love of the person, so you're not looking at them and thinking, oh, they don't do this, they don't do that. You're thinking what they are doing. 
And and this was, you see, because we're all familiar with the fact that the most famous law in the Torah is love your neighbor as yourself. Hillel, Akiva say this is the central teaching. But we also know that it was not widely observed in Jewish life. The rabbis actually attribute the destruction of the Second Temple to causeless hatred, to sinat chinam within the community. Just the opposite of that uh, edict or dictum. Yeah, right. right. And what's the reason? Because nobody thinks they're guilty of sinat chinam. Everybody can justify why they hate somebody else. So the Rebbe was looking for reasons to love somebody else. This Jew doesn't keep anything. It doesn't mean he's a non-religious person. It means exposing to things and doing it in a loving way. And people picked up on that sense that the Rebbe really loved them, that it was not a trick. He didn't act lovingly t- only to get them to do mitzvot. He loved them for who they were. Joseph Tolushkin is here. The book is called Rebbe, highly recommended. Let me ask you uh, to help me understand a couple of things about the Rebbe himself. Um, he could not have demanded all that he demanded from his emissaries if he himself was not as committed 20 to 24 hours a day mm-hmm. to this entire pursuit. It was because of this example that he set that he was able to expect that from his uh, constituents, from his uh, emissaries around the world. Uh, I ask about his stamina. It's something I bring up with every member of Chabad. How was it, especially at his older age, which is when I had met him, obviously, uh, uh, through, through your book, I, I met the younger Rebbe a little bit mm-hmm. as well. How was it that someone could have what I call these superhuman uh, traits, including the stamina to be up for days at a time or get very, very little sleep and to respond to every request and to be on top of everything. I mean, are we talking about somebody who had qualities that simply no other human being had? I don't want to say that for a couple of reasons. Number one, I don't think it. I think he worked on himself very, very hard. And the second reason I don't want to say that is is because the more we make him seem to be an ethereal super then then ironically there is less to be learned from him right we learn more from a person now this was obviously an aspect of his from a young age his father-in-law had said of him at 4 a.m he's either going getting up or going to sleep you know he always had that and And now when he was a young man and that's when he was a young man we have evidence he would yes we have evidence that he would spend 16 hours a day at one point in his life in learning and uh, and then would add on doing some secular studies because we know that at a young age he attended university classes first in Russia, then in Germany, then in France. He had a very wide-ranging intellect and an extraordinary memory. Uh, but he, what he demanded of his, of his emissaries, he demanded of other people as well. And ironically, not ironically, it's a happy irony, I'm, one of the people I'm talking about is your father. Uh, the, when your father was doing work for the Memorial Foundation for Jewish Culture, the Rebbe, on one occasion, asked him to undertake a certain task in Eastern Europe, right. and your dad found it, your dad, Allah Shalom, found it to be much more difficult and even a little dangerous, and and he felt the need to tell the Rebbe. He wanted the Rebbe to know that he had carried it out, but that it wasn't quite as simple right. as he thought it was. It was a rough mission. <laughs> yeah, right. And, uh, and as your da- father put it, I came back and gave the Rebbe a report, and I concluded that the Rebbe should know that this was not an easy task for me. It was very difficult. The Rebbe looked at me quizzically and said, Rabbi Siegel, since when did you make a contract with the Almighty for an easy life? (laughs) And at a speech your father delivered after the Rebbe's death, he explained how this one 
seemingly throwaway line uttered in fewer than 10 seconds permanently affected him. Even though a task will not be easy, each of us must do what we know we were put on earth to do. Right. So that, you know, what I try and do in the book Rebbe is identify what I call seven virtues of the Rebbe, which I think help account for the movement's growth even subsequent to his death, because these are guidelines on how to live. And one of them, as I call it, is uh, anything worth doing. And then I'll ask an audience, how does that statement conclude? And everybody Mm -hmm. says it's worth doing well. The Rebbe's attitude was anything worth doing is worth doing now. And you'll find this as a characteristic of shluchim, but I have found since I wrote the book and have been pushing this for everybody, we all have telephone calls that we know we have to make, we put off. We all have people in the hospital that we know we have to visit, but we put it off. We all have tasks, vocational tasks, spiritual tasks, and we always can put them off. And then if you really start thinking, if it's worth doing, do it now. And it's moving. And and, and, you're, and you made such an important point earlier that, that I think applies to this. You, you would contend that he was like, quote-unquote, any other person, but worked on himself to get to that point where doing something now became the most important thing, became something that, was, you know, that happened automatically with him. I believe so. Now, again, he was endowed. You know, IQs, unfortunately, or fortunately, are not distributed evenly. Right. He clearly had an innately very high level of intelligence, but... Do I argue nobody else had such an intelligence? No, I think he cultivated it to an extent that others didn't. He had a spiritual affinity, and he cultivated these things. With an amazing discipline. I remember one of the Shluchim conferences. Someone got up and spoke about the time management skills that he had, how not a moment was wasted, how if he realized that Mincha started 30 seconds later than he thought, he would utilize those 30 seconds. You know, we're, we're standing around waiting for Mincha to start. He, he's not doing that. You, you know, you you just na- zeroed in on a very, very important attribute, so I'm going to elaborate on it sure. for a minute because I think this has relevance to every everyone out there listening. The Rebbe, at one of his sichas, at one of his talks, spoke of how he had learned the trait from his father-in-law of what he called Hatzlacha Bizman, how to succeed with time. And I'd venture to guess, if you were all standing here and I asked you by a showing of hands, how many of you feel your time often is wasted or you don't accomplish what you want, that most people would raise their hands and the others probably wouldn't be telling the truth. <laughs> so, has for shalom, I don't want to cast libel on anyone. Okay, anyway, so the Rebbe told of an incident in 1927 when he was, of course, not yet Rebbe. He was, in fact, not even yet married to Chaya Mushka, the daughter of the previous Rebbe, but he was a very, it was understood they were getting married and he already had a very close relationship with his father-in-law, the sixth Rebbe, who was about to take a trip uh, from St. Petersburg, where he lived, to Moscow. And it was going to be a very unpleasant trip. He knew how he was being shadowed by the KGB. They were constantly looking for excuses to arrest him. Subsequently, he was arrested, was going to be executed, and an international outcry saved him. So it was nerve-wracking. Right. The Rebbe, the young Menachem Mendel, was very nervous. And he goes into his father-in-law's office, and he sees his father-in-law serenely, serenely, going over papers, editing things, looking at this. And he says, how could you be so calm? And he said, I learned this from my own father. No matter what we do, there is a limited amount of time in the day. There is no way we can add a second to the day. So all we have is that the time is in front of us. 
if while we're working on something, we borrow from the past and start thinking about things that happened in the past or things in the future that we're nervous about and that we can't change, it makes it impossible for us to be fully focused on this task. What I ask people to do, and I try and do it, is don't start and saying overnight I'm going to do this. Try and do it for five minutes at a time. For five minutes at a time, really try and work on what you're doing and and resist because, you know, other thoughts of other things come in. This became so much a part of Menachem Mendel Schneerson that people who had the briefest encounters with him repeatedly emphasized that they felt that during that time, they were what most mattered to him. Correct. Mm-hmm. I read that a lot in your book about people who were given very short pieces of advice by him. You know, advice that, like you mentioned about my father's encounter right. for 10 seconds. I mean, you know, short pieces of advice that were life-changing, life-changing experiences just based on these few words from the Rebbe. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I understand the point you're making in terms of time management, but even beyond that, how he was able to concentrate in a very short meeting with somebody with, I can only, only imagine how much on his mind. So you've just taught us that it, when you're sitting and doing a task, it doesn't pay to regret the past and it doesn't pay to worry about the future. It pays, as the Rebbe would say, to concentrate on what the what is happening in the moment. Uh, that's right. what's most. So it's, it's the only thing you can control. Right. Now, e- even if you're being sentenced to prison the next day. Right. Or that day. Yeah, right. Now, there might be times when you need to devote times to thinking about right. the past or to thinking about the future, but do it for that reason. That's what you're then doing. And, and thinking about it. But what many, many of us do is we're constantly living in the past, in the present, and in the future, and it's making it impossible for us to fully utilize the present. Joseph Telushkin is here. The book is called Rebbe. Um, more on trying to understand the Rebbe. You, you know your modern Jewish history, to say the least. Is this an only an America story? Is it even possible to conceive that a Rebbe who was, I don't know, in communist Russia and remained there or somewhere else on this globe outside of New York and the United States could have pulled this off, could have gone ahead and created this network of such influence around the world? Certainly in the current period, I don't think that could have been the case. Number one, Jews who were stuck in countries like communist Russia we're going to get no outside recognition. And the more Jewish they became, the more they were endangered. The Rebbe had an intuitive understanding <clears throat> that there was something different in America. And I, I'm going to u- ex- elaborate for a moment what sure. I mean. His father-in-law, when he came to the United States, you know, was immediately told, you can't carry out in the United States what you did in Eastern Europe. The Jews here aren't open to that religiosity. And he got upset. And then at a certain point, though, he said, America is not different. And what he meant by that expression was American Jews are not different. If we come to them with the right message of Judaism, we can reach them. The Rebbe, though, understood that America as a country was different. There was an openness to Jews, and actually that openness was expanding and expanding in in the very fact that he <clears throat> becomes the first rabbi, the only rabbi to ever get the Congressional Gold Medal. Right. There is an openness to Jews. In 2000, I remember when I was a kid in high school in 1964 and Barry Goldwater was nominated as the Republican candidate, so Harry Golden made his famous joke, I always knew the first Jew nominated to be president would be an Episcopalian. (laughs) Had anybody told us in 1964 that a Jew would be on a national party ticket in 2000 and that he wouldn't campaign on Saturday because it was Shabbat, it would have sounded ridiculous. The Rebbe picked up on this that non-Jews respected Jews for their observance. 
he had I, I have in the book an incredibly interesting exchange, very respectful, but but a real disagreement with the Rebbe and Rabbi Joseph Glazer, who was the head of the Reform Rabbinical Association, right. in which Glazer insistently tried to get Chabad to stop doing the candle lightings, the Hanukkah menorah lighting ceremonies. And and the Rebbe said, look how many people we're reaching. And Glazer was concerned it's going to spark anti-Semitism. Right. Uh, court cases were brought against it. Now there are many Reform and Conservative rabbis who sponsor such things. So the Rebbe understood there was an openness. And when Jews are so hidden about their tradition, it actually doesn't win them esteem among non-Jews. They just make the Jews look like elitists who look down on them. When an emissary around the world would come to the Rebbe or communicate with him about their accomplishments in a certain city or country, the Rebbe generally had one response, and that was, go do more. Correct. Doesn't it seem counter to the American culture, the way we raise our, or the way we're told to raise our children today, when someone, instead of being given a really good pat on the back and telling them, you know, what you've accomplished is incredible, uh, that that the response, in fact, is do more, wouldn't you think that that might breed some resentment uh, from these emissaries who've done so much to that point? You know what I suspect? I suspect that the Rebbe knew individuals well enough to know to whom to say that and to whom to not. I don't explore this in the book, but I suspect there are people that he might have known were functioning at their limits. There was a uh, Jewish businessman who was a big supporter of the Rebbe named David Chase. New Jersey. Yeah, okay, right, Right. yes. And uh, to Chase, the Rebbe said, listen, a human being is like an engine. It should never be allowed to be sluggish if it's only functioning at 60%, but don't try and function at 100% either. So the Rebbe, I think, you know, had that awareness, and he gave people pride. One of the very, very first shluchim in America, uh, in Detroit, uh, Beryl Shemtov. Beryl Shemtov, who goes out as a shliach with his wife a week after they were married, and in those days, it was in the 50s, you took a train to Detroit. And the Rebbe found out they were traveling in coach. And that's a very long trip to just be sitting. And he says, you're a king and a queen. You know, you've just been married. married. And he made sure that they got a sleeper compartment. And I could tell 55 years later, when I was out at the, at the Ohel, and I, and I had occasion to interview Rabbi Shemtov, the glow of satisfaction, he felt appreciated. He felt appreciated by the Rebbe. So he knew how to give a pat on the back. <laughs> he did know how to give a pat on the back. But because people knew that he was always pushing himself for more, right. you know, they they could accept that, that, that this was a beginning stage. What did you think, and I apologize for the potpourri, you know, not knowing what direction I'm going in, but I had a series of questions I just wanted to bounce off of you. What do you think of the of the fact that he recommended to many not to consider going to college, yet took his own further academics so seriously. Okay, there are a few comments about that. Number one, the Rebbe argued that because he had gone to college, he had known the pitfalls in it. I think what was more fundamental to the Rebbe's perception was at the time he went to university, he had already mastered much, much of Jewish knowledge. He was already a Talmud Chacham when he went in the 20s. The same was true of Rabbi Soloveitchik, and right. he and Soloveitchik, he and Rabbi Soloveitchik became quite friendly in Berlin. They both had acquired 
why did I think he wanted the people to have that arsenal of knowledge? He knew that the college environment tended to attract faculty members, many of whom were not were highly critical of religion and could undermine religion, particularly in the social sciences, which almost by definition are more relativistic in their approach. You know, you don't you're studying the universal human experience, and they're very a lot of things are just attributed to cultural differences that might actually have moral implications. So I think, first of all, his primary opposition was people going to college at the age in the United States when people typically do, right. when their minds are very plastic and opened uh, to being influenced. So it's not an uncommon phenomenon that kids who have a fairly a strong Jewish educational background, particularly if they go far away from home to out-of-town universities, um, live on campus, it was quite common, certainly in those times, for many of them to become less religiously observant. Today, there's, you know, that's one of the reasons the Rebbe, on the one hand, did discourage people attending college, and on the other hand, this is interesting, there are Chabad's now set up at over 200 universities, Correct. and one might think that these Chabad groups are then trying to encourage kids to leave and go learn in a yeshiva, right. which they don't do. The Rebbe, very often when people who already were in university came to him, would tell them not to drop out and not to waste the time they had already done. Now, that shows he didn't think college was a totally trafe thing. because had to be for the right person, though. Well, because if somebody said, oh, I discovered in the middle of the meal that my food was unkosher, the Rebbe wouldn't say, well, but you have to finish it because you don't want to waste food. <laughs> right. But if he felt that way about university, he would have told people to drop out. So I think he had a more complicated relationship. But to be honest to him, he generally discouraged uh, his, his, his followers and those over whom he had sway. If they're going to do it, do it at a somewhat later period. Isn't it interesting? And I don't know if uh, I got through most of the book, not all of it. So I don't. I don't. I don't think you you address this. One of the purposes of the book was not to examine Chabad versus other Hasidic groups. You don't. You don't analyze its behavior compared to other Hasidic groups. But nonetheless, I'd love to ask you: Don't you see a marked difference? in the way that Chabad and the Lubavitcher Rebbe operated and continue to operate compared to other Hasidic groups. It seems like the Rebbe always encouraged his emissaries, and even those outside of the movement who he considered emissaries, to think on their own, to reach their own conclusions and decisions very often, while we know, and not to criticize, just an observation, that in many other Hasidic groups, people will not move or make any significant step without the direct um, advice of the Rebbe, without being told, you know, exactly what to do or not to do. Okay, without commenting on other groups, because right. I really haven't studied them, uh, you know, carefully, uh, one of the chapters I have in the book is I call it Creating Fearlessness, Creating Leaders. Uh, Rabbi Groner, a close, a very close oh, yeah. secretary of the Rebbe, told me he once came to the Rebbe with a halachic, a legal query, and the Rebbe, instead of giving him an answer, said, you're a rabbi like me. You can go and paskin. You can go and rule. And then when Groner, Rabbi Groner studied the issue and came back to the Rebbe, the Rebbe smiled and said, that's the conclusion I would have reached. There was case after case like that. Rabbi Yitzchak Meir Hecht in New Haven is despondent. He's feeling overwhelmed. He hasn't had the success he wanted. He says, I'm handing it all over to you. The Rebbe solved my issues. And the Rebbe said, I want you to know I sent a rabbi to New Haven named Yitzchak Meir Hecht. Apparently you don't know him. 
I advise you to go and meet him. <laughs> in and reference find, to himself. In reference to himself. So the Rebbe wanted uh, wanted people to do that. He empowered Shluchim. Uh, uh, Rabbi Feller in in uh, in Minneapolis is being sent out as an early shliach. He says to the Rebbe, he wants concrete suggestions. The Rebbe said, be flexible. Feller was a big baseball fan. When Sandy Koufax came in the World Series to not pitch his famous right. game, so Feller had the idea to bring Tefillin to his hotel. With the That's Rebbe. a true documented story. True. He yes. actually went to Sandy yes. Koufax he went, yes, during the World the Series. Yes. What he did was he went to the hotel. At the hotel, I have this through an interview. At the hotel, they somehow uh, looked at him and assumed, oh, this must be Koufax's rabbi. Now, remember, non-Jews often think right. Jews have Many rabbi. Jews are religious, <laughs> right. you know. They're not as aware that the percentage of Jews who are observant isn't so high. And so he got up to the room. He said, now, again, remember, Feller was a baseball fan, which the Rebbe wasn't. So right. I don't know if the Rebbe would have been aware that Koufax was a southpaw, right. that he needed a different <laughs> pair of tefillin. That means lefty, folks. Yes, right, that he needed a different pair of tefillin. <laughs> so, uh, don't so, tell me he brought lefty tefillin. Yes, he knew to do that. <laughs> now, Koufax, though, did not want to put it on. Maybe he thought it would be right. too showy. But he certainly kept it and thanked him. But that's the sort of flexible activity that, you know, he empowered people. And that's the phenomenon of why the movement has been able to be so strong even since his death, because he left models of behavior and models of empowerment. You know, that would be a question if the Rebbe was still around to ask him, what do you think of what Koufax did that Yom Kippur? I am sure the Rebbe would think that that was... Unbelievable for I mean, look what it did for Jewish pride. Look what yes. it did for the Jewish world. And uh, that's that era. why he wanted to reach out at any level to get Jews to do something Jewishly for the sake of the person doing it. This turned out to be, and Kofax did not expect this. This turned out to be a very significant element in his life. Right. He did something and became right. Never thought became, it would be that big of a deal. Right, and it the effect it had. Because we know when prominent people do things, uh, it causes other people to take it uh, to take it more seriously. Right. Um, Joseph Talushkin is here. The book is called Rebbe. Harper Collins release available everywhere. Um, what do you think of the notion uh, of the Rebbe making all of his shluchim independent? I'm I'm sure I can only imagine that certain emissaries were in a panic when they realized that the financial responsibility for their Chabad house eventually would become their responsibility, right? On the other hand, any good parent knows that if you cut the apron strings and, you know, let somebody fly, you know, let your children get out there and become independent, it's probably the best thing for them. I guess that follows right along with his philosophy, right? That he wanted to create leaders, as you mentioned earlier. Right. And I think certainly in the early days when he was hand-picking leaders, because there weren't that many at the beginning, there weren't that many shluchim, I think he was very aware of who it was that he was sending out. Right. And I'm sure that he exercised caution, but he knew the more successful leaders he sent out, the more they would in turn become models to others. And then people would think, oh, I can do this. See, because if the only one in the movement who was succeeding was the Rebbe, it would actually discourage people because they think, I don't have his commitment, I don't have his intellectual capabilities. Mm -hmm. But then suddenly they start see, seeing what other shluchim are doing, and I think that becomes uh, models. 
models you're, for them. You're sitting in a state that uh, whose Chabad network is led by Moshe Herson. Of course. Great choice by the Rebbe, as we see years uh-huh. later. I mean, we're talking about an unbelievable leader. By the way, you end Chapter 6. If you don't mind, may I read from Joseph Telushkin's book for a moment? I would be honored. I hope you consider it a dramatic reading, but I just have to read this because you talk about that leadership and the fact that he wanted to create not followers, but leaders. Correct. People to go and lead. The gift the Rebbe gave his followers, which enabled them to touch and challenge people two and three times their age, with far more secular knowledge and professional attainments, was the belief that they were on a mission for something higher than themselves, to serve God and that God would not have sent them on such a mission unless he believed in them, and the Rebbe would not have sent them unless he believed in them. And by carrying out their personal missions, these shluchim became leaders. They became visionaries. They became proactive. They became fearless. And that might be the most mm-hmm. important part. Nothing stops these emissaries and their incredible wives from just continuing to progress right. and trying and doing everything that's possible to help the Jewish community and wherever they may be to help the general community as well. That is definitely true. Which is unbelievable. And you point out you point out so brilliantly in this paragraph there are people that they're dealing with who are two and three times their age, with plenty more secular knowledge, professional attainments. These are not these are not college graduates. These are young rabbis who are dealing with people who might have PhDs, might have millions of dollars in the bank, might be the most influential people in their communities, and they make such an impact on their lives. It's just an unbelievable phenomenon. Because people are incredibly struck by intelligence and sincerity. The combination of the two is very, very important. And I'll give you an example. One of the odd phenomenon about Chabad, and it's well known, is that a disproportionate percentage of its contributions come from Jews who are not halachically observant in, in many areas. And so for, the question is, why is that? Okay, but so okay, so I'm going to relate it with uh-huh. a little story. Sure. For many years, as I'm sure many of your listeners recall, there used to be a little classified ad every Friday morning on the front page of the New York Times. Sure. The only such ad that appeared: Jewish women and girls, because the Rebbe remember pushed children from the age of three to light candles, right. which was not the minhag, uh, which was not the custom among Right, we generally had married women in the community lighting. Right. He wanted, he wanted all the girls to light. Right. right, he wanted the girls to light. And so it's a Jewish women and girls candle lighting tonight is at 6-11. Okay, so number one, a lot of traditional, a lot of observant Jews, people like yourself, myself, sometimes if we forgot when it is, we checked. The and New amazing, Times, on the yeah. front page of the New York Times. But many non-observant Jews were also struck by seeing that ad. On January 1st, 2000, the Times put out a millennial edition. And for that millennial edition, they also published a projected January 1st, 2100. A hundred years later. A hundred years later. I remember that. And a lot of it is very unfamiliar. It's a very different world. Should robots be allowed to vote in elections? You know, (laughs) things that would take people. And then all of a sudden, in the middle of the page was... Jewish women and children, Jewish women and girls, candle lighting tonight. A <laughs> hundred years later. It turned out, January 1st, 2100, really is a Friday. Oh, and it turned out that an, apparently an Irish Catholic editor at the Times, aware of that fact, called up someone in Chabad to find out if what they time had, what time candle lighting would be. <laughs> and I think that story explains why even many non observant Jews support Chabad. Of one thing, they're sure. 
however different the world is going to be, January 1st, 2100, there will be Chabad. Women are going to be lighting Shabbat candles. And I think that story, in a sense, really symbolized that to Unbelievable. Them. Joseph Telushkin, does this tune sound familiar? <laughs> This is actually from a from a from bringing, from a gathering right. where the Rebbe is inspiring everybody and the entire crowd breaks out in song. Ufaratsta. If you'd have to give Chabad an anthem, that would be it, right? right. That would be. And the, you shall spread forth right. east, west, north, south. Right. And I think, as you pointed out in the book, a word that appears only one time in the entire Chumash, right? Right. And and that was of course Chabad uh, spreading out. The the what about the influence of these public lectures? We know we, we we read in your book about amazing encounters, personal encounters with very prominent Jews and non-Jews that the Rebbe had. Obviously, we learn a lot of lessons from those. What about the public encounters? I'm not, I'm not even um, uh, uh, speaking so much about the uh, uh, the shiurim, the the Torah classes that he would give, but these fambrengins, these gatherings. How important was it to the whole spirit of the movement? Oh, first of all, it was extraordinarily important because, number one, the Rebbe would also list his priorities again, so they were sort of... Uh, his uh, call it, to action took place yes, in the Fabrengan. his call to actions, but also his call to learning. Generally, as the Fabrengan went on, his talks would become, you know, also more esoteric. Uh, and then, so, you know, these were all features, but also it made people really feel unified. It brought them all together. They, in a sense, became an army but an army of love. So normally, when you feel the need to unify an army, it's not unified through a message of love. Right. It's usually being galvanized because of a common enemy. But here, it was being galvanized through love. And it struck me how effective it was. One of the things that struck me about the shluchim is I've not come across a... Fun- Look. The human nature being human nature, there must be instances of it, but I have not come across jealousy or envy among them. Now, I know, you know, I went to rabbinical school, I went to YU, but what I'm going to say now is true of orthodox, reform, conservative, reconstructionist. The general pattern was you get ordained and you go to a community. And usually when you're a young rabbi, your first community is either a very small community or you become an assistant to a very prominent rabbi. Right with the understanding that after a few years you'll go elsewhere. So status in the rabbinical world in general comes from going to one place and then getting a better, a better quote, better pulpit in another city and a larger pulpit, and then ending up at one of the really large Jewish America, large cities at a very uh, affluent and large pulpit. Right. It's not the case. Chabad's the sole exception. Because of the insistent belief that each life is of infinite value, it made it possible for Shliach, even one who's in a small city, to have such great pride at what he and she, because remember, it's Shluchim, it's not an individual Shliach, Shluchim is a couple, that was another innovative feature. You know, normally the term Rebetzin just simply means a woman married to a rabbi. She might be involved in the congregation, she might be involved in her own career. Here, the couple go out as a unit, and uh, and they stay where they go, which gives it just sends a message to the community. By the way, they're staying where they go reflects something else as well. I quote the story in the book of Ariel Sharon saying to the Rebbe, because they had a very nice relationship, 
and he was trying to give the Rebbe a little a little critique. He said, you know, in the Israeli army, the commanders go first. Why don't you make Aliyah? Do you know how many tens of thousands of people would follow if you made Aliyah? And the Rebbe said, a commander in the army is only one model of leadership. Another model of leadership is the captain of a ship. And the captain of a ship is the last one to get off. And he said, and my emissaries, my shluchim know, and I know, you can't leave a community while you're still leaving, you can't leave a city while you're still leaving behind the Jewish community there. Unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Joseph Tolushkin is here. The book is called Rebbe, The Life and Teachings of Menachem M. Schneerson, the most influential rabbi in modern history. I love the encounters you talk about, um, the yechidus the, um, that many people had with the Rebbe late at night. Uh, the, the the joke in Newark was that if my father was late for shul, he was either he, either he was in Israel and he was out of town, mm. or he was with the Rebbe because otherwise my father was never late for shul. And that meant obviously that these encounters ended at five six in the morning. Yes, and that's that was the whole point that uh, mm-hmm. that these would go all night. Yet another tribute to the Rebbe's stamina and his incredible. Uh, uh, his incredible victory against fatigue, which is still so hard to believe. The hours he stood at the Ohel, the hours he stood giving out dollars. Yes, that's right. I don't right. know why I'm so fascinated by it, but may, maybe because people think I have stamina with my schedule, I say to myself, it is nothing compared to what he did on a daily basis. It doesn't actually, come close. No. You, you also, with your schedule, I'm sure think about this, how you know you try to maximize your time and to not be fatigued, but it comes nowhere close to what he was able to achieve. Yeah, so, you know, now that you're saying that that's true, for a variety of reasons I had very little, uh, I didn't sleep, in, I, I had little sleep last night, and I remember when I woke up in the morning, I know I had to get ready, I was meeting to, you know, I left the city at 7 to be here for your show, and I remember uh, the, one of the first thoughts I had when I woke up, gee, am I going to have time to have a nap today? <laughs> Meanwhile, there was a reform rabbi named Herbert Wiener who in the 1950s wrote two articles about Chabad for Commentary magazine. They were written from a very admiring stance. And uh, and he remembered when he first became aware of the phenomenon in the mid-50s that the Rebbe would sometimes have Yechidison till 4 or 5 in the morning Maybe have a short break for sleep. And so he asked Rabbi Chodakov, the Rebbe's top aide, so what does he do the next morning? Does he sleep in the next morning? And Chodakov (laughs) says, no, the Rebbe's at his desk directing the activities of Chabad throughout the world. He said, when does he then sleep? And he says, Chodakov just sort of shrugged, (laughs) like he had no clue, with a smile. Uh, But this is what the Rebbe, this is what he does. All right, I'm starting to get grabbed by the clock, so I have to maximize this time, as we would say about the the Rebbe. Um, But I got sidetracked because I mentioned about the stamina. Tell me about encounters with non-Jewish people. Give me one example that fascinated you about an encounter with a not not necessarily a religious non-Jewish person, but somebody from you know from completely from the outside world of what the Rebbe or we would consider our world who came and had an interesting encounter with Okay. The Rebbe lived, of course, in Crown Heights. Right. Crown Heights adjoins Bedford-Stuyvesant. 1968, the first black woman is ever elected to the House of Representatives. Oh. Obviously, there have been other blacks represented, but Shirley Chisholm, Shirley Chisholm sure. was, the first, uh, was the first black woman. Historic. And this was in 68, only four years after the Civil Rights Act, when the House was still dominated by a lot of old-time Southern Democrats. Right. Southern Democrats in those days might have been liberal on some issues, but they were certainly, the old Southern Democrats were were not at all liberal on civil rights issues, and right. they decide to 
you know, like a nasty trick. They put her on the agriculture committee. She represented coming from Bed- New York, right? She represented Bed Stuyvesant, <laughs> Crown Heights. She didn't want to get into Congress to be on the agriculture committee. One newspaper in New York headlined it: "A tree grows in Brooklyn." Ooh. And she was really upset and vocal about her upset. She gets a call from Rabbi Chodakov that one of her constituents, Menachem Mendel Schneerson, would like to meet with her. So she comes in to meet with the Rebbe. She had met him once previously when she was running. The Rebbe would not endorse individual candidates, but would bless and meet with candidates. And he said, I understand you're very unhappy. And she said, I'm unhappy. I'm insulted. I wanted to do work on education. I wanted, you know, and the Rebbe said, but you're dealing with the Agriculture Committee, which deals with all the surplus food being created in America. Look at all the good that could be done. You represent many poor people. Shirley Chisholm subsequently became very involved in food stamps, in WIC, women, infants, and children. Fifteen years later, when she retired from Congress, David Lukens, who, who worked as an aide for uh, Senator Moynihan, sure. was present when she gave her fair, at a farewell breakfast, and she spoke of this encounter with the Rebbe, and she said, if poor people today... Four children are getting more food. It's because that rabbi in Crownites had vision. And one of the things I really wanted to communicate in the book was I didn't want to just tell the story of the Rebbe. I wanted to tell the story of what we can learn from the Rebbe. So when I go to those virtues of the Rebbe, right. the love of your neighbor, the focus on the individual, how do you become a leader? The careful choosing of words, the Rebbe's constant oh. assertion of optimistic words. You gave an example in the book, you refused to call a hospital a Beit Cholim, which means a home for the sick. Right, Beit Refuah. Beit Refuah, home for the healing. Anything worth doing is worth doing now. So what I want to emphasize to people who are listening in is, this book actually has the teachings in it of the Rebbe that have the capacity to transform and elevate every every reader's life. And that's Jewish why, and non-Jewish, and Orthodox and non-Orthodox. And that's why this book is flying off the shelves in every genre, for that exact okay. reason. Joseph Talishkin is here. I'm going to try to quickly go through major issues in the next five minutes. He refused, maybe that's the wrong word, you could tell me if there needs to be a better word, he refused to to endorse or support Holocaust memorials. Explain. The Rebbe felt that ultimately here okay here i don't know that he ever said explicitly right. what i'm now saying that's why what i the way i portrayed it may be a little inaccurate. Right. right i don't think that the rebbe thought that in the long term the focus on the holocaust would be something that would help enrich or guarantee Jewish survival. Now, look, the Rebbe did not want to be misunderstood on this. Somebody said, you might think I'm doing this because I personally wasn't touched by the Holocaust, but he then listed all of the close relatives, including his brother, who were murdered. murdered Right, and his sister-in-law and and brother-in-law who were murdered. Nonetheless, I think he understood that Jewish survival, possibly in that first generation, there was such a consciousness of the Holocaust. I'm part of that generation. I was born in '48. You know, not to give Hitler a posthumous victory. Right. But ultimately, the message of Chabad was Shemcha Shel Mitzvah, the joy of doing a mitzvah. If, so, if a man likes davening in the morning, a woman likes the Shabbat candles, they like studying of Torah, they like uh, celebrating Hanukkah, they, you know, all of these things, that's going to keep people wanting to be Jewish. In the year 2014, for a 20-year-old person or 15-year-old person, the Holocaust is not going to be central. And therefore, I think what the Rebbe really wanted to commemorate was not the death of the six million, 
but the way so many of them lived their lives. And that would translate into encouraging people to live a high-quality right. Jewish life in this country as well. Right. By the way, having said that, and I can't answer this because I don't know the answer, I certainly don't think he would have opposed all Holocaust memorials. Right. I think he would have found the memorial in Washington very important. Right. But I think what he would have been concerned about was enormous resources being spent on dozens and dozens uh, of memorials when, as he put it, he thought that, as he put it in a letter to a cousin of his who was involved in putting up a memorial in France, there are needs of the living that are very, very pressing. A lot of poor people that need to be fed, let's put it yes. that way. And finally, um, and I don't know if there's any legitimacy to this theory, and please, folks, don't don't think that I'm that I'm trying to paint the Rebbe as such a you know, calculated person when it comes to this. But we, we you talk about uh, the Soviet jury movement, and it was clear that the Rebbe um, uh, felt that things should be done behind the scenes. We know that he certainly fulfilled that promise, that mm. he would be involved behind the scenes, that's for sure. Uh, and, of course, people like ourselves, uh, you much more involved, but even me as a kid, were heading to rallies and demonstrations, and obviously, and, and many would argue that both were important, but we know where the Rebbe stood on this. Is it possible, is it possible that 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 privately the Rebbe really had no objection to the types of things that you and I were doing, but publicly felt that the best thing for the situation would be to, because he was so involved behind the scenes and because those operations were so essential, that he felt that publicly that needs to be his stand. Well, obviously I would like to have reached that conclusion right. because I was very active in the student struggle for Soviet Jewry. I think there's some basis to it. Uh, I think the Rebbe really was concerned that it could have a deleterious effect. I think he was very concerned at being very public in his opposition because he knew that the Soviets monitored his words and they and they would quote them, uh, you know, in arrests of other people. On the other hand, he knew that not the whole Jewish world was going to listen to him. So when he met with Rabbi Israel Miller, who at the time was the president of the Conference of Presidents of Major Jewish Organizations, right. and tried to convince Miller to call off a demonstration, and Miller wouldn't do it, the Rebbe said, well, then if you're going to have that demonstration, make sure it gets on page one of the Times. Mm. Because I think he understood that the worst thing would be if there were public demonstrations and nobody showed up, because right. that would convince the that it had no future. By the way, Rabbi Miller, and I got this both from his son David, uh, uh, told me that he visited Russia in '64 and was allowed to actually speak at a synagogue, which was very unusual. But he came back to the Rebbe and with tears told the Rebbe that he had been taken to a warehouse. And he had seen hundreds of Torah scrolls there in the warehouse because there was no need for them. And he said to the Rebbe, if we raise money, the Soviets always want money, let's ransom those Torahs and we can use them in the United States and Israel. And the Rebbe said, don't do that. The time will soon come when those Torah scrolls will be used in Russia. And that was just the most remarkable prophetic statement because you know and I know being involved in the Soviet Jewry movement in the mid-60s, we did not think there was going to be a revival of Jewish life in Russia. But he somehow knew. Your trips to Russia or trip took place when and what years? Uh, the first time I went to Russia was in 73. And uh, then I think then I couldn't really go back because I was listed on a criminal indictment as an anti-Russian agent. And in, in, in '73, was the Rebbe's influence there uh, apparent to people like yourself who were visiting? Did you meet people yes, who spoke I of did. him? Or? Uh, yes, I did. I was able to give my to leave behind a pair of tefillin 
for a Chabad Chassid in, in Moscow, which was immensely satisfying to me. But, uh, but I, most, but honestly, most of my encounters were with the more activist refuseniks, right. the ones who were demanding more pressure. And it's possible, therefore, that the Chabadniks would not have gone out of their way to interact with me because they didn't want to be identified, you know, with the uh, with the refuseniks at that time. They were following two different strategies. Right. But I'll tell you an interesting story, which I do relate in the book. Yaakov Herzog, uh, who was a son of the late chief rabbi, sure. and obviously he had two sons. Chaim became the president right. of Israel. Yaakov was a directed the prime minister's office, was very close with Golda. And died relatively young. And died very young, unfortunately. Yes, you're right. He was 50, I think. Uh, he commented, and in fact, just yesterday I was speaking to Menachem Ganak of the OU, right. who, who mentioned this incident, and I mentioned the incident in the book, where Herzog had been briefed about what the American government knew about Soviet Jewry. And one of the things that the State Department official told him was, he says, you know, the Soviets have managed through informers to infiltrate every organization in Russia of a particularly a dis, that could be a dis, an organization of dissent, religious, non-religious, political, with the one exception of some obscure Jewish group headed by a rabbi in, in Brooklyn. <laughs> so it's quite a remarkable story. Unbelievable. Clearly the most influential rabbinic leader in modern history, you would argue, likely since the Rambam. Correct? I would. I certainly believe he's the most well-known since right. the Rambam. I say in modern history, yeah, quite possibly since the Rambam. i got to think more about that. But as I said, the most influential in modern history, but, but in many, many hundreds of years. Joseph Telushkin, it's called Rebbe, the life and teachings of Menachem M. Schneerson, the most influential rabbi in modern history. Highly recommended. It is an um, absolutely amazing read. I am honored that you were here today. Thank you so much for spending all this time here. Thank you so much for doing a tremendously good interview. Great, great questions. Thank you. I appreciate that. The book is called Rebbe. Get it, everybody. It's available everywhere. Final minutes on a Thursday at JM in the AM.
Our brothers and sisters in Israel, we are with you. It's your favorite America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard a listener sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial, around the world on the web, jmtheam.org. Well, I don't have final confirmation yet about our weekly conversation with Malcolm Honeline. I, I am assuming at this point that it will take place tomorrow morning at 740. It's possible we'll have to adjust the schedule a drop because of um, his meeting in Washington tomorrow, but we'll figure it out and let you know, of course, early tomorrow morning. Make sure to be tuned in tomorrow for a Friday edition of JM in the AM. Monday, right after JM in the AM, we head to Israel with the Nefesh Benefesh flight. Looking forward to that incredible journey with all the amazing uh, Jewish heroes of the day who are making Aliyah on Monday. Uh, coming up next, you have Charlie Harari in the Book of Life on jmnam.org, and then Miriam L. Wallach with an amazing brand new presentation of That's Life. Make sure to be tuned in all day long and enjoy at jmandtheam.org. Have a fabulous Thursday. Until tomorrow, it's Nachum Siegel reminding you, remember the past, live the present, and trust the future.